You're listening to Season 3 of Future Ecologies. Hi folks. If you're joining us for the first time, you've found yourself three episodes deep into a four-part series. If, before we get started, you'd prefer a bit more background, I recommend you scroll back in the Future Ecologies feed to Goatwalker on Errantry and part two, Sanctuary. We've got links to both in the show notes. Over those two episodes, we met Jim Corbett, a goat herd, philosopher, and catalyst of the Sanctuary Movement, a modern-day underground railroad transporting Central American refugees into the United States during the 1980s. Throughout his years milking goats and smuggling refugees, Corbett had drawn together a remarkable community who shared a deep, abiding love for the more-than-human world. This episode begins with two of those individuals. My co-host, Adam, will take it from here. Up until this point in this series, we've discussed the life of Jim Corbett, his philosophy of errantry, and the start of the sanctuary movement. Now, though, I'd like to talk for a few minutes about cacti. Every year, Nancy Ferguson and Tom Orem trek out to Saguaro National Park to administer a census for cacti. If you were to ask them why, this is what they'd say. We inherited this. It was an accident. (laughs) The story behind this annual ritual is a study that dates back to before the Second World War. In 1939, the saguaros out at Saguaro National Park were tall and huge and beautiful, and they had started to die. And the initial conclusion was it was bacterial necrosis or bacterial rot. At the time, the University of Arizona had some land directly adjacent to the park, which was still a national monument. And so they devoted an entire square mile of that area for saguaro research. In the fall of 41, they actually surveyed the area and they put a wooden stake by every single saguaro in the square mile, and there were 15,000 of them. So that was a huge area. And they divided it into half, and the northern half was their control, and the southern half every saguaro that was showing the black ooze of rot of bacterial necrosis, they cut down, chopped into pieces, and buried in big pits. After all of this effort, it turned out there actually wasn't much difference in response between the treated area in the south and the control area in the north. So then they said, well, we can't keep up monitoring all 15,000 plants. But what we'll do is we'll pick six 10-acre plots, and we'll keep following those, three in the north half and three in the south half. And those then were followed every year. Tom and Nancy first started helping out with the study in 1979 under a plant pathologist named Stan Alcorn. When Alcorn passed away in 1999, they had inherited one of the longest-running natural history studies in North America. For the uninitiated, saguaros, species epithet Carnegia gigantea, are the iconic columnar cactus of the U.S. Southwest 
So rather than short and fat, they're a column that gets taller and taller, like 30 feet high eventually. And as they age, they put out arms and at the very top of the column and at the tip of the arms is where they produce the flowers and the seeds. So the way they look, they look like a person with their hands up signaling a, a, Which is a appealing. field goal in football or something like that. So all of the vocabulary ends up being like anthropomorphized. So you talk about the arms rather than the branches and you talk about the ribs. And it's corrugated so that when it's a drought, they sort of shrivel in and lose diameter and those sections sort of compress a little. And then a good rain comes and they get rehydrated and it can swell up and become rather smooth around the outside. Saguaros are the giant green churros of the desert. You've almost certainly seen them depicted somewhere in popular culture perhaps as the backdrop for Wile E. Coyote's fruitless pursuit of the Roadrunner in Looney Tunes. Capable of living over 150 years, they are the characteristic species of the Sonoran Desert, which spans southeastern California through much of southern Arizona. What's special about the Sonoran Desert is we have two rainy seasons. It's not like the Mojave, winter rain, not like the Chihuahua, summer rains, but it's in between and getting both. And that's rather crucial to saguaro germination and establishment and making through the first two or three years. I mean, the first couple of years are really tough because they don't have that water storage tissue developed. Over the years, scientists studying saguaros have learned a lot about their role in ecosystems. They're considered to be a keystone species. For example, much like trees in a forest, the saguaro is a magnet for woodpeckers and flickers. These industrious birds excavate holes in the cactus. Then the saguaro reacts by forming callus tissues so that it forms what we call a boot. And all sorts of birds use those holes for nesting and habitat and so forth. Many desert species pollinate saguaro flowers and eat saguaro fruit. But the white-winged dove is among the most important. The doves will make their nest in Palo Verde trees near saguaros. And then when they lay their eggs and the chicks come out just about the time the swirl fruit is ripe. And so the white-winged doves eat the swirl fruit with the seeds and then they regurgitate and feed their squabs the seed, but they're sloppy feeders. Those regurgitated seeds of the saguaro fruit land in the soil around the Palo Verde and find an ideal habitat for germination. In fact, Palo Verdes and other leguminous trees like mesquite are considered to be nurse plants for the saguaro, meaning that a saguaro growing up under one of these trees has a much better chance of surviving its first few years than one growing out in the open. Even after they're dead, saguaros continue to support the ecosystem, much like fallen logs in a forest. When you walk up to it, you're just enveloped with the smell of the decomposition, and it's unlike anything that I've ever smelled before. And the whole thing is humming. You know, I, it doesn't actually move. I didn't see the, but you know, there's such a hum of the, all the insect activity inside that it's, it's alive in a very different way. The annual Saguaro census has had a number of focuses over the years. But the questions Tom and Nancy are trying to answer have a lot to do with something botanists call recruitment. 
which is a fancy way of talking about the next generation of cacti. Where did these thousands come from? New recruits are plants that have germinated and survived those tough first years to become part of the saguaro population. The reason Tom and Nancy are so focused on this issue is that since 1993, only five new saguaro plants have become established in the entire study area. We found one last spring. The one before that was in 2015. And then there were just one or two in the last decade. We're not seeing them. We're not seeing the little ones. This might sound alarming, and it might be alarming. But the great thing about long-term studies is that they give us perspective. In the first decades of the study, the 1940s and 1950s, there was similarly very low recruitment, just like after 1993. But between the 1960s and the 1990s, there was a huge population boom, possibly because those years tended to be wetter than average. And because saguaros are so long-lived, they can weather long droughts, both in terms of water and recruitment. I think they're going to be all right. What they have going for them is their long age. So they can span long periods of drought and then expand. But who knows? You know, one doesn't know what climate change is going to mean. That's, that's the big thing. And so Tom and Nancy continue to volunteer their time to check in on the saguaros every year and to document them as they live and die and are, hopefully, born again. For a podcast called Future Ecologies, we haven't really spoken very much about ecology in this series up until now. Tom and Nancy's work with saguaros might feel far removed from Jim Corbett and goat walking and sanctuary. But as I've said, I don't think it's a coincidence that so many of the people involved in sanctuary also maintain deep relationships with the more than human world. Tom and Nancy devoted their careers and now their retirement to working with plants. John Fife is a consummate hunter and outdoorsman. Anne Russell became a marine biologist, and Gary Paul Nabhan would become the preeminent ethnobotanist for the Southwest, as well as a celebrated author and activist. And these are just some of the people I spoke to. In the years after Sanctuary wound down, Jim and Los Cabreros Andantes would pivot from refugee smuggling to applying the principles of Sanctuary and Jim's developing philosophy of pastoral symbiotics to the land itself. They would create their own sanctuary in the land where saguaros grew up under the shade of juniper trees. What they created there persists to this day and provides a refuge for those who seek the enduring stillness of the desert. But can this community survive the challenges ahead and keep the promises that they've made to one another and to the land? In other words, Will they be able to support the next generation of herders, the new recruits, for Jim's vision of a sanctuary for all life? From Future Ecologies, this is Goatwalker, part three, Saguaro Juniper. On our second day in Arizona, 
our friend Teresa dropped associate producer Ilana Fenariev and I off at the start of a rough dirt road in the small town of Cascabel, Arizona. Susan Telefson and her pickup truck were there waiting for us. Susan has been the keeper of the Hermitage at the Cascabel Conservation Association for a number of years now, although Jim passed away long before she arrived. See ya. We packed into her truck, and she started slowly down the dirt road leading to the Hermitage. The land was stunning. Rolling hills dotted with saguaros and ocotillos, interrupted by dry washes. We entered through a cattle gate next to a grove of contorted mesquite trees and an old windmill. Unloading our gear, we were welcomed into a small, handsome shelter with a bed and a desk inside. On the desk was Pat Corbett's personal copy of a book I'd been desperately trying to get my hands on for a couple of years, Jim's Swan Song, entitled Sanctuary for All Life. With the book in hand, we settled in for a few days of reading and sojourning in the desert stillness trying to get to know the place, and Jim's ghost, a little better. As journalist Miriam Davidson was wrapping up interviews with Jim for her own book, Convictions of the Heart, she asked him what he thought he would do after Sanctuary. I I think that some of the things we're doing with regard to land redemption while the current work we're doing in that direction may or may not come to fruition are pretty important. And so I probably will continue to pursue that. This cryptic response prompted a follow-up question. What did he mean by land redemption? Well, this, this has to do with efforts to get a group together to buy a ranch, which would permit individual participants to have their own acreage within this system that would be their private property, Mm -hmm. at the same time having considerable common management of other aspects of land use, develop a bill of rights for the land that would uh, protect the community of plants and animals already there as this other community settles in, Mm -hmm. and would work out particularly ways for human beings to be part of a wildland community without destroying or, or seriously altering it, uh, where their livelihood could be integrated in a harmonious way rather than being an intervention and a yeah. destructive force. With the conclusion of the sanctuary trial, Jim would finally get the opportunity to try and put these ideas into practice. Pat and Jim relocated from Tucson to the small town of Cascabel to the east, in the San Pedro River Valley. They bought a piece of fertile, riverside land where Pat could keep horses and Jim could keep his goats. They immediately recognized that the desert wildlands in and around Cascabel were special. We saw the land out there, and, and then Jim started to think about how could he manage to get this land preserved. And then he started talking to Tom and Nancy because Tom is kind of the brilliant how to make it happen financially man amongst with Nancy. Tom and Nancy had kept a low profile during the sanctuary years, with Tom acting as the debt coordinator for Pat and Jim's refugee smuggling efforts. They are just incredible people who do an incredible job of quietly making things happen. So 
He told them about taking a hike up one of the ridges here where you could see Asawara was growing under a juniper tree, with the juniper being the nursery for the saguaro when Nancy was just enthralled with this. And she said later that was all it took to get her involved. And one of the things I had said to him early on was that, you know, if we get some land, I'm really interested in having it be a place that has saguaros. And so sure enough, sometime later, he you know, came in and said, I found a place that not only has saguaros, but they're growing under juniper trees. And those are usually very separate ecosystems. It was like, whoa, that's really different. And within a month's time, we were out in Cascabel, you know, looking at this place where sure enough, there were saguaros and juniper trees acting as the nurse trees for saguaros. And then we went and put together saguaro juniper as a way to start buying land in Cascabel. This was the birth of the Saguaro Juniper Corporation. And uh, Jim and Tom and Nancy were able to get a pretty good-sized group of people together to come up with the money to uh, purchase a parcel of used land, and uh, that became Saguaro Juniper. The first purchase was in 88, and that was just 135 acres with 16 people. Those 135 acres included the beautiful Hot Springs Canyon, a tributary of the San Pedro River. And this small acreage was only the beginning. From Jim's years of goat walking, he'd become convinced that the best way to live in a symbiotic, nonviolent partnership with the more than human world was as a herder, as an integral part of a herd. And to his mind, the only way to recreate a nomadic herding community in modern day North America was to secure enough land to support the herd and the herders without causing ecological damage. In the arid West, this meant somehow acquiring a lot of land because it takes a huge area to support even a small herd sustainably. 135 acres simply wasn't enough. It was around this time that Jim would leave goats behind, transitioning instead to cow herding well, we came down here with goats, and, well, let's see, the lions ate some of them. And then both of us were getting to the point where we felt like we needed to skim the cream off the milk. Well, it's a lot easier to skim the cream off cow's milk because it rises much more quickly and it's more visible, and so it's easier to skim. And so we decided we'd start drinking cow's milk, so we kind of retired the goats. And we finally we got down to one goat, and the poor thing was so lonesome, so we decided we'd turn her out with the horses so that she'd have some companionship, and we did. But unfortunately, eventually, after we'd done that for a while, a lion got her. But at least she had company in her last years. There were other reasons for this transition as well. For one, as Jim would write in Sanctuary for All Life, Personally, I'm also more inclined to favor cows now, since the cow has become the West's most commonly denounced animal pariah. In addition to the sense of kinship that Jim felt with the maligned animals, this transition from goat to cow reflected Jim's shift in focus from personal to collective errantry. In fact, due to its Judeo-Christian mysticism and preoccupation with cows, Sanctuary for All Life is affectionately subtitled the Cowbala of Jim Corbett. Sanctuary for All Life continues the exploration of pastoral symbiotics that goat walking initiated. 
where goat walking is primarily a form of personal errantry, the focus of Sanctuary for All Life is wildland stewardship by a covenant-formed community, specifically stewardship on saguaro juniper rangeland by saguaro juniper herders. And those herders were herding cows because of all of the advantages cows had over goats. The greatest of all was their unique ability, socio-politically, to unlock enough public land for a small herding community to support itself. When he switched from goats to cows, that made, it, it was both good and bad. I mean, he, he could just get out with his goats and, and go. But you can't quite do that with cows. But on the other hand, you, you have to have cows in order to have the lease. Let me explain that last part. The vast majority of the land in the arid west of the United States is public land, administered by the U.S. Bureau of Land Management, the Forest Service, or another governmental entity. But that doesn't mean that this land is protected. Far from it. Across much of this area, extending from the borderlands of the Sonoran Desert, north, throughout the Great Basin, to the border with Canada, livestock grazing isn't just allowed. It's mandated. In order to hold a lease, you have to have a brand, and you have to have cattle, and you're supposed to graze it. According to the Center for Biological Diversity, livestock grazing is promoted, protected, and supported by federal agencies on approximately 270 million acres of public land in the 11 western states. Ranchers lease huge amounts of land by paying modest fees at below market rates. In other words, ranching on public lands in the arid west is highly subsidized. And while many ranchers have adopted practices to mitigate the harm that cattle can cause to wildlands, they represent the minority. Throughout the history of the United States, poor grazing practices have predominated, resulting in ecological damage and degradation at a massive scale. Despite this damage, the heavy subsidization, the marginal amount of actual production involved, and the fact that most ranchers can barely make enough money to keep ahead of their debts, this system remains largely in place to this day. But Jim and the Saguaro Juniper Associates recognized an opportunity in this dysfunctional state of affairs. With a herd of cattle, a little bit of capital, and the promise to graze, they could lease the public land surrounding the 135-acre Saguaro Juniper plot and steward it collectively. Jim would be able to apply his philosophy of pastoral symbiotics at a landscape scale. Grazing use that is in harmony with the untamed biotic community and that displaces injurious commercial grazing is therefore the key to the redemption of these lands. So when Jim Corbett spoke of land redemption, he was proposing nothing less than the restoration of the wildlands of the arid west through covenant community and cow-human symbiosis. And with thousands of acres in and around Hot Springs Canyon, now at his disposal, he set out to see if it could be done. On the second day of our retreat, Ilana and I set out from the Hermitage to explore Hot Springs Canyon. It was a cloudless day, 
and the canyon walls stood in stark relief against the open skies. It didn't take me long to realize that the Sonoran Desert is a botanist's dream. What looks like a tangle of dry brush at a distance opens up into a world of plucky barrel cacti, stoic agaves, trailing wild grapes, elegant daturas, and gregarious jojobas, and wildflowers of breathtaking variety and color. Raptors, songbirds, toads, scorpions, grasshoppers, rattlesnakes, and even a desert tortoise greeted us on the trail as we made our way up the wash. And after a couple of dry miles, we heard the siren song of all desert travelers, the trickle of a creek. The cool water was a welcome reprieve to the increasing heat of the day, and I couldn't help but notice the quality of the riparian vegetation and the water and just the ecosystem in general. Honestly, it was hard to believe that saguaro juniper runs a herd of cattle in these lands, but clearly they take great care to avoid inflicting damage on the riparian zones. If there were scars from grazing, my eyes just weren't trained enough to spot them. The entire canyon pulsed with life under a canopy of ash, sycamore, and acacia trees, sheltering us beneath the desert sun. We began climbing the walls of the canyon, and it didn't take us long before we found what we were looking for. There, overlooking the canyon below, was a saguaro and a juniper growing side by side. In the late 1980s, Jim's approach to wildland conservation through cattle grazing was ahead of its time. Alan Savory was just beginning to preach his gospel of holistic management, and it would take years for his ideas to become popularized. Saguaro juniper was a novel experiment for its time, and the grazing aspect wasn't the only unique feature. Jim and the saguaro juniper community also wrote up and adopted a Bill of Rights for the land formerly known as the Saguaro Juniper Covenant. The Saguaro Juniper Covenant Principles, a Bill of Rights for the Land. One, the land has a right to be free of human activity that accelerates erosion. Two, native plants and animals on the land have a right to life with a minimum of human disturbance. Three, the land has the right to evolve its own character from its own elements without scarring from construction or the importation of foreign objects dominating the scene. Four. The land has a preeminent right to the preservation of its unique and rare constituents and features. Five. The land, its water, rocks, and minerals, its plants and animals, and their fruits and harvest have a right never to be rented, sold, extracted, or exported as mere commodities. In acquiring governance of the land, we agree to cherish its earth, waters, plants, and animals, 
in a way that promotes the health, stability, and diversity of the whole community. This entails attentive stillness to meet and know the land as an active presence. It entails study, observation, shared reflection, and cumulative experience to increase and bequeath our understanding of ecosystem health, stability, and diversity. It entails symbiotic naturalization into the land community, a communion of actual nurture and shelter. As elaborated by these entailments, fully accountable governance, stewardship, is the distinctly human way of bonding into one society with all who share in the land's life which is the foundation for instituting a biocentric ethic among humankind. This is a remarkable document for its time. The idea that non-human species, and the more-than-human world in general, have rights that human communities must respect is embedded in most, if not all, indigenous cultures. But in the dominant culture of settler colonialism, the idea that any rights could or should be extended to nature was and continues to be a radical notion. The famous conservationist Aldo Leopold entered into this conversation when he suggested in 1949 that, A thing is right when it tends to preserve the integrity, stability, and beauty of the biotic community. It is wrong when it tends otherwise. In the modern era, many point to a seminal article by USC professor Christopher Stone, published in 1972, and entitled, Should Trees Have Standing? Towards Legal Rights for Natural Objects. But it wasn't until the dawn of a new millennium that a small borough in Pennsylvania would become the first jurisdiction in the United States, and in the world, to formally codify rights of nature into law. Shortly thereafter, in 2008, the South American nation of Ecuador would famously become the first to enshrine the rights of nature into its constitution, making the indigenous word Pachamama iconic for the rights of nature movement. From 2008 to the present day, there's been a cascade of similar declarations and laws passed at all levels of government around the world, concerning everything from rivers to whole territories. But in 1991, when the Saguaro Juniper Covenant was adopted, it was a complete anachronism. Looking back, Jim was so prescient, responding to the crises of the moment with solutions that wouldn't enter the mainstream until long after his own death. Even if Saguaro Juniper had been an utter failure, the Covenant document alone would represent an incredible contribution to the evolution of settler thought on the rights of nature. That being said, Saguaro Juniper was, and is, anything but a failure, even though it could probably never have lived up to Jim's astronomic ideals. After having spent much of the 80s covertly naturalizing Central American refugees into the United States, Jim had set out to accomplish nothing short of finding a way to naturalize entire human communities within wildland ecosystems. How exactly would he do this? In goat walking, Jim explored sojourning and human-goat symbiosis as a means of hiding, hiding the, the world, world within, within the world. world. 
of escaping, if only for a few weeks, into a pastoral solitude that opened the way to what he called errantry. With Saguaro Juniper and Sanctuary for All Life, Jim explored the covenant-bound community and cow-human symbiosis as a means of giving Giving the the land land back back to to the the land. land of finding a way out of dominion and into communion with wildlands. His assessment of the roots of institutionalized violence in modern civilization was simple. Civilizations were born when warriors learned how to enslave the farmers who had learned how to enslave the land. His solution? Learn to stop enslaving the land. And though he may have been a Quaker at heart, His experience with Judeo-Christian congregations during the sanctuary movement led him to embrace a surprising approach, the observance of the biblical Sabbath. Here's Jim, speaking to a gathering of Quakers. Have you heard that Cain's punishment for murdering his brother actually consisted of his forgetting the meaning of the Sabbath? It makes sense. Since he was the first tiller of the earth, he probably did value his work so highly that he forgot, much as we have forgotten. For millennia, Semitic peoples have called wilderness God's land, distinguishing it from settled areas possessed and remade to fit human plans. The generation that crossed the Jordan was reared in the wilderness in order to assure the integrity of the covenant-formed community's new consciousness. Succeeding generations were given the sabbatical observances as their way to retain this consciousness and thereby to resist assimilation into societies dedicated to conquering and consuming the creation. Many of us know that, according to the book of Genesis, the God of Abraham rested on the seventh day of the creation, resulting in the occasional inconvenience of businesses being closed on Sundays. Far fewer are aware that the biblical Sabbath is a much more radical proposition. According to the books of Exodus and Leviticus, every seventh day is to be a day of complete rest and sacred assembly. Every seventh year is to be a Sabbath of rest unto the land itself. And every 49th year, that's seven times seven for you math nerds, is to be a jubilee year when all land should lie fallow and be returned to its original owners. Who or what exactly qualifies as the original owner has been subject to some debate, to put it mildly. But Jim had his own interpretation. For Jim, sabbatical practice would be the key to giving the land back to the land. Sabbath is a time to quit grabbing at the world, to rest, and to rejoice in the creation's goodness. It opens a way toward the peaceable kingdom that is a nonviolent alternative to the apocalyptic hopes of revolutionary zealots. Lacking all Sabbath, a people would also lack a gathering place in time from which to hallow the earth. To live up to its covenant, the Sawaro Juniper community would need to live sabbatically Jim saw the practice of nomadic cattle herding as the best way to do this in the Arizona desert. In his own words, God does a bovine form display to those who live this pastoral way. In embracing a sabbatical approach to land redemption and restoration, 
Jim placed himself firmly in opposition to Alan Savory's developing practice of holistic range management, a herding system based on closely managed rotational grazing. Jim felt that the herd was to be joined, not managed. He considered the concept of artificial enclosures, which are necessary in rotational practices, to be antithetical to any hope of harmoniously integrating a herd in wildlands. To Jim, managed herds were abandoned herds. No amount of cross-fencing can fit an abandoned herd into a wildland harmoniously. In Jim's estimation, holistic range management was chiefly concerned with the growth of grass, while his own practice of pastoral symbiotics was chiefly concerned with the growth of post-civilized humanity. This is because, at a fundamental level, Jim believed that human, human beings, beings can't, can't know enough to manage, manage life on Earth. And so, in the final decade of his life, Jim would resist the management paradigm. Land redemption, giving the land back to the land, would begin with the rejection of goal-oriented thinking. It would be a process of evolutionary, evolutionary succession rather, rather than, than utopian, utopian intervention, intervention, characterized by an emphasis on means over ends. To recognize that management is itself the problem is to understand that Sabbath observance is the restoration of the world. Jim's steadfast commitment to his principles is nothing if not admirable. But as you may have already guessed, it wasn't always easy to live up to, or even to live with. Here's Pat. It was difficult sometimes. You know, and sometimes in our relationship, it was like the irresistible force met the immovable object, and then we would just have to stop and back up and see if we could find some other compromise to decide this issue. And so if I decided I was not going to do something in, say, a particular way, then we have, would have to have that discussion, because otherwise... It could be a little bit like living with a bulldozer. Perhaps as a result of Pat's positive influence on him, Jim did at times seek compromise in order to create the saguaro juniper community. He was very inclusive. It, you know, when he was thinking up a plan and a project, he really you know, didn't want it to be just him. He wanted it to be you know, ideas from you know, whoever was participating. For example... Despite Jim's pastoral ethic, allowance was made within Saguaro Juniper for Tom's love of gardening. The thing about Jim was that, yeah, well, he wanted to be pre-agriculture and think that way. But knowing that Tom was into gardens, you know, he's writing up the covenant and saying, okay, Tom, how can we fit agriculture into this? On the other hand, his strict interpretation of the Saguaro Juniper covenant would exclude one of his closest friends. Here's John Fife. When he created the covenant community out there, he, he of course, came to me and said, okay, we want you in on this. And I said, great. I love that country. I've been out there again and again and again in the Galleros. And I think it's, it's a special place, and I'd love to buy in because uh, I want to go hunting out there, right? And Corbett looks at me and says, oh, you can't hunt. I said, what do you mean I can't hunt? I want to be a part of the community. That's what I've always done out there. 
And he said, no, no, that's part of the covenant that the participants have written into the covenant understanding. There will be no hunting of deer or other parts of the ecosystem out there. And I said, well, you know, then I can't buy in. And he said, well, it's really important. I, I, we really want you to be a part of this. I said, well, you've excluded those of us who understand hunting as a part of <laughs> the whole ecosystem that we're a part of. And he said, well, I'm sorry. And I said, now let me get this right, Jim. You run cattle on covenant land, right? Yeah, that's part of the covenant. We're going we're gonna to work with herding on the covenant land. Said, and all those cows are dying of old age out there, right? He said, well, no. <laughs> no, no, that's not part of the deal. I said, so you take cattle in to slaughter and you won't let me hunt deer out there. Is that the deal? He kind of grinned. And then one day I see Pat. You know, we're just talking about what's going on with the ranch and what's going on uh, land and everything like this. And she said, and we had a really bad night recently. A mountain lion came in and killed some of our goats. And I said, oh, and what Jim do about that? And Pat said, he hired a hunter to come and kill the lion. I said, really? So I couldn't wait to see Corbett. (laughs) I said, Corbett, you won't let me be a part of the covenant out there and go hunting, but you hire a hunter to kill a lion who's killed your goats. Is that what you're trying to tell me? And he just grinned. (laughs) In the end, John wouldn't be a part of the grand experiment. So... Why agriculture and not hunting? It's a puzzling contradiction, and it wasn't the first compromise that would be made. Jim's rejection of the very idea of management would run up against the reality of holding grazing leases. And and so as soon as you enter into the contract with the state to lease the land, then it's not totally free and easy. That begins a sequence of events which leads to more um, more management than one would like. It would prove impossible, even for Jim, to be among the animals 100% of the time. And so, water systems and fencing and summer pasture, some kind of management had to be accepted as part of the system. And then the other part of it, of course, is Jim's philosophy, which is that not just to protect land in a preservationist way, but be part of it and interact with it. And he, he sort of well, let the cows teach you. So there's, a, there's an element of both conservation from the point of view of just not wanting heavy use on the land, but then the other side of it is wanting to use the land as part of the whole process. So that, that's the tension that always exists between where to graze, how much to graze, and uh, what the limits are in terms of both the land and the people and so forth.
On the final night of our retreat at the Hermitage, I decided that I was going to try and sleep outside, on the ground, without a blanket, just like Jim. I suppose that I wanted to see what it felt like to lie beneath the stars in the desert and imagine myself as part of a herd of animals without recourse to the comforts of civilization. It was chilly enough in October that I ended up compromising and bringing out my sleeping bag. Ilana was perfectly happy to sleep inside. The desert night was incredibly still and the stars luminous as I had hoped. But lacking what I imagined to be the reassuring presence of my fellow herd animals, I felt alone and exposed in a way that I was not accustomed to, despite years of backpacking, often solo. Perhaps it was the unfamiliar stillness of the desert, or perhaps it was the lack of a tent, but for the first hour or so, sleep eluded me. My mind was busy, cycling through the many challenges and contradictions posed by trying to live as Jim had lived. At first, I thought I might be imagining the snorts and stomping emanating from the open wash. But by the time the heavy footfalls were indenting the dry earth around my head, I realized that I was laying in the midst of a stampede of totally unfamiliar, unidentifiable wild mammals. Frozen in terror, I curled up inside my sleeping bag and prayed that I wouldn't be detected. As soon as the group had passed, I unclenched, unzipped, and made a beeline towards the hermitage and the warm bed waiting within. Somehow, Ilana was unsurprised to see me returning so soon. It was only the next day that I realized that I'd been lying directly in the path of a pack of wild New World pigs, known as peccaries or javelinas. I had been so caught up in retracing Jim's steps, I had forgotten to consider that herds can come in diverse forms. Today, the Sawaro Juniper faithful continue to manage a small herd of cattle fulfilling the covenant and protecting thousands of acres of land in the San Pedro River watershed. We're part of a wildlife corridor that stretches all the way down and across the river. We all think that's pretty important and want to try and keep it going. Pat Corbett continues to take an active role out on the range, on horseback with the herd. Well, when the cattle are on range, I kind of act as the range rider and try and keep track of the cattle and the water and whether the fences are up. Then I call on somebody else who's younger and healthier than me to come repair whatever it is that needs to be fixed. You know, like I say, getting on the horse is kind of hard, but once I get on the horse, I can just sit there and again, getting off is a little bit difficult. Sawaro Juniper maintains a solid base of community support. On occasion, even Ann Russell is able to make the trip out from California to help out. Yeah, I got to do that last April. Pat lent me her shaps, and, and it's just very quiet. We were walking. I was on a horse called Lumpy, short for Lumpen Proletariat. <laughs> it's like one big family at home on the range. You know, the fact that they're cows and not people at a certain point is not very relevant. You know, we're all here together. 
Of course, it's a nuanced relationship. You know, I eat our beef, so obviously, you know, we slaughter livestock. But we have this great commitment to making sure that they lead a good, healthy, in bovine terms, happy life, contented life. And that in the process of doing this, we don't damage the land where they're being kept. The saguaro juniper approach to conservation, based on the conviction that humans can be naturalized into the wildland community, is still uncommon, but is slowly gaining traction in the environmental community. Thinking and acting as if human beings can actually be a positive part of wildlands is a pretty radical notion. And it's almost more radical to conservationists than it is to you know, farmers and ranchers. And you know, that's the notion that's really dear to me, that if, if I love saguaros, I don't have to say people should never go near saguaros or the Sonoran Desert as a whole, that there can be a place that we can be part of. It's largely a labor of love. The beef and other products from the cows is enough to maintain the operation, but not enough to provide stable employment for herders. This means that while a number of young people have been attracted to Saguaro Juniper and its sister organization, the Cascabel Conservation Association, it's proven difficult to provide them lasting opportunities to be a part of the herd. Well, there are a lot of young folks, I'm sure, who would really like to. The problem is, you know, this kind of operation doesn't really bring in enough money to, you know, keep a lot of people employed. We really struggle to pay one person. In fact, you know, we don't get all of that from the cattle operation. And so it's, it's tended to work out that the people who can be involved in this are folks who are retired and still physically active and have an income that allows them to live here. In this way, Saguaro Juniper is a lot like many small, community-based conservation organizations in aging communities. It's also a bit like the Saguaros in Tom and Nancy's study. Saguaro Juniper will only thrive in the long run if it can seed and support the next generation. In ecology, recruitment is just a fancy word for this process of welcoming new members into a community, whether they're cactus sprouts or young herders. Right now, Saguaro Juniper is welcoming people who want to pursue a sabbatical life in the desert, carrying on and adapting the work that Jim, Pat, Nancy, Tom, and others began several decades ago. They've just published an expanded second edition of Sanctuary for All Life, and have been reviving monthly sabbatical gatherings. They've even started a goat walking group. From my most recent conversations with community members, they're entering an exciting uncertain period, a time of rediscovery, reflection, and hopefully, of renewal. So, is it possible to create a sanctuary for all life in this place, at this time? For Tom and Nancy, even after all of these years, there are times when Jim's ideals feel out of reach. To me, it's a bar that I can't achieve. But on the other hand, it's an ideal that I really respect and look to do what one can and also enable others who might be interested to try. When I reflect on Jim's writing, he never fixated on the goal. Just the process, just the journey. 
And that journey, by definition, is going to look a little bit different for everyone. It occurred to me as we were sitting talking that the cows and the saguaros both do the same thing for me. They're both ways that encourage me to get out and be part of the system myself. The fact that we're out, you know, every spring counting those saguaros means that, you know, I'm a part of that system and seeing things and understanding that I wouldn't otherwise. And it's true with the cows that it keeps me grounded and, and in this place. I finished reading Pat's dog-eared copy of Sanctuary for All Life on the last morning of our retreat, shortly before Susan picked us up. For a few moments, I lay still in the sun, grateful for the opportunity to sojourn on this redeemed land. Speaking frankly, I don't think that the pastoral life is for me. The only milk I can stomach is nut milk, and too much idleness drives me to distraction. But. I do hunger for that stillness that, among all of the demands of civilized life, can be so elusive. I worry that all of my frantic activity is just kicking up more dust from the parched earth. And I'm terrified of the possibility that, in working so hard to restore the earth, I've sacrificed the daily presence that might allow me to hallow it. I think that I return again and again to Jim's life and his writing, not because it agrees with me, but because it challenges every part of the person that I've become. It is like walking into the desert, not sure if you're gonna come out again, searching for a forgotten spring. And on a desert mountain, amidst the hush of soaring granite, I've opened a forgotten spring the few who remembered thought it had long ago gone dry, but I found the hidden place and dug down until the stream ran clear and cold in the summer sun. So what are epitaphs to me? Still in my twenties, I could already write as good a remembrance as any I could imagine for myself at 90. He kept a lamb or two from freezing. He found and opened a forgotten spring. Jim died in 2001, leaving both the manuscript and the project of creating a sanctuary for all life unfinished. In the next and final episode of this series, we're going to leave Jim behind, picking up the threads that extend from his life to the present-day crisis in the borderlands and to those continuing the work of sanctuary in its many forms. That's next time on the fourth and final part of Goatwalker. Goatwalker is produced by myself, Adam Huggins, and Mendel Skolsky for Future Ecologies. Ilana Fenerev is the associate producer for the series. For photos, citations, and more information about the people and events described in this episode, please visit futureecologies.net. Okay. I have some exciting news for those of you who've been asking about Jim's books. 
In a coincidence so well-timed, you'd think we'd planned it. As of last month, Sanctuary for All Life has been republished by Cascabel Books, with a new afterword by 13 folks who continue to honor the Covenant and manage the Hermitage. It's a fascinating read, and it's available for a reasonable price on Amazon. You don't have to borrow Pat's copy or make a special order from a used bookstore in Germany, like I did. In equally exciting news, thanks to the efforts of a number of dedicated folks, Goat Walking is going to be republished in September of this year via Kindle Direct Publishing. If you'd like to know when it's ready, you can send your name and email address to goatwalking2021 at gmail.com. In this episode, you heard Anne Russell, Tom Oram, Nancy Ferguson, John Fife, Pat Corbett, Jim Corbett, and Miriam Davidson. Narration was by Philip Buller. Music was by Satorian, Hidden Sky, and Sunfish Moonlight. The ever-evolving Goatwalker theme is by writer Thomas White and Sunfish Moon Light. Special thanks to Teresa Madison, Susan Telefson, John Fife, Pat Corbett, Nancy Ferguson, Tom Oram, Gary Paul Nabhan, Gita Bodner, Amanda Howard and the University of Arizona, Sadie Couture, Phil Buller, Danny Elms, and Susan L. Newman. Future Ecologies is an independent production, supported by our patrons. To join them, go to patreon.com futureecologies. This series was recorded on the territory of the Tohono O'odham and produced on the unceded, shared, and asserted territory of the Penelicate, Holitsum, Lalem Serataneo, and other Holcomenum-speaking peoples.